Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. As we look at the book of Job, right at the start of Job chapter 1, we, we, we read about Job and his type of character, his nature. And so today we're going to take some different verses as we go through. I'm not going to read everything. I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase some things because obviously we only have four hours together. Um, and so, um, <laughs> joke. Am I? Um, and so uh, we're going to paraphrase through some things and we're going to read some of the verses. But as we see in chapter one, Job is a man who is blameless and upright. He is someone who fears God and he shuns evil. He, uh, he's married. He has a wife. He has 10 children and he is very wealthy. He's somebody who has lots of animals and, and property and, and, uh, and is well known. Somebody who is well known. We also get this picture of Job that he's someone who cares deeply. There's, there's a moment in Job chapter 1 where it talks about he actually gives sacrifices on behalf of his children. Uh, and just in case they've done something wrong. Like just in case it's like, I don't know what they did today behind closed doors. But I'm going to do a sacrifice just in case um, there's something wrong. So he's someone who cares deeply for his family. Deeply about those around him who loves God so much. If there was an award for the best person alive at the time, I'm going to say Job was a top candidate for that award. He was one of those guys. Now, as we process through today about suffering and grief, uh, there's something really important we have to understand. That at the time when, when, when Job was going through this, and actually something that goes all the way throughout the Bible, and something that I think we can see in our culture today, there's a running principle. There's a running principle that goes through the book of Job and throughout Scripture. And, and, and principles kind of help define how we see things. Maybe how we understand our Bible. Maybe how we understand faith. How we integrate our life with our faith and, and how we see other people. And, and, the, and the principle that we see all the way throughout the book of Job is this. It's called the retribution principle. Now, this is what it means. It's the common belief that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. Basically, if, if you are a good person, good things will happen to you. If you are a bad person, it's not going to go well for you. It, it's kind of like what we would probably call karma, right? It's that idea of like good people get good things, bad people get bad things. And, and then this is the principle that guides the conversation throughout the book of Job. We're going we're gonna to hear about this from, from, from four different responses. This is the principle that people are framing their way of how they view God and how they view life. And so at the core of the book of Job is the nature of Job's relationship to God. And does being a good person mean that God will bless you more and that you won't suffer? It's the age-old question of why does bad things happen to good people, right? You've probably asked that a lot this year. Why does bad things happen to good people? And so what happens to Job? Well, we find out in Job, um, and I'm going to touch on this spiritual realm stuff. There's some stuff going on with some conversations between God and Satan, and there's some stuff going on there. I'm going to leave that for Rob to, Rob to, to, to talk to you guys about. You know, Rob, you can have that one. Um, uh, I'm just going to process through the suffering today. Um, but this is what happens. His, uh, his servants and his animals are killed. Um, he loses his property. He loses his income. He then loses his children. Um, as, as, a, as, their, as their barn, their house topples, and, and his children all die. And then he goes on to start to lose his health. Um, he gets sores over his body, and he starts to lose his health. Now, 
let's just pause for a moment there. Um, that is incredible grief and pain to go through in such a quick amount of time. Um, to lose that amount of things. Things that are, uh, are so important to you. Um, you know, property can go. Jobs can go. You start to lose your kids. That's, that's a hard, hard moment. And for Job, he experiences severe grief and severe suffering. And maybe for you this year has been that too. You have, you have experienced severe loss. This last kind of 12 to 18 months has been, um, it's not just been a pandemic. It's, it's been a year in which we have experienced suffering and grief to, to levels that we have never maybe experienced before. Or that we have just experienced for such a long amount of time. You know, I've lost people in my life. I've, I've had family members and friends who have died. But I don't think I've ever had 18 months of continual grief and pain and suffering like this. This has been a year for all of us that has shaped and framed how we maybe see ourselves, how we experience suffering, how we see other people. You know, I've had friends who have lost jobs. I've, um, my, my old Bible professor and his family, uh, they all got COVID and, and, and were severely sick, his wife and son, in and out of the hospital. Uh, I think of some of my close friends this year who have miscarried. I think of uh, Sydney, a girl that, um, that used to serve at Bible camp with me back in the summer who tragically died a few months ago. There has been extreme suffering, and, and you can insert your story into this too, that, that as we look at Job's story, it's not just to compare and go, oh, Job had it worse than me, so therefore my pain is irrelevant. No, we're seeing that actually there's pain here and there's suffering here, and we all experience pain and suffering. And so how we process through that is important. And how we look at that is important. And it's interesting. Uh, when we look at Jesus, uh, Jesus has lots of promises for us. Um, and, and as we look through the Bible, we talk about God's promises being true and being faithful. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever been uh, in someone's home and they have those like placards on their walls, like the promises of the Lord. You know what I'm talking about? The ones that are like, he is faithful. He is so good. His love endures forever. And then Jesus says, you will have trouble right? Have you ever seen that one in granny's home? Like, I don't think so. Like, you walk in, it's like, you will have trouble. Like, I don't think it's one of the promises that we ever talk about that much, but it's in there. Jesus actually says, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. The beautiful thing about Jesus is he says, I have overcome the world, but we still will have trouble. There still will be pain. There still will be suffering. So it's how do we respond to that is important. And so what happens when Job is visited with pain and with suffering, we find out in verse 20, this is how he responds. At this, Job got up, he tore his robe, and he shaved his head. In verse 20, it says that. Job actually starts to lament. He, he starts to express his deep grief about what's going on. He gives, him he gives himself the permission to feel. Do you? He, he gives himself permission to grieve. Do you? He gives himself permission to be sad. Do you? This is really important because if we don't have a theology, so an understanding of God that allows ourselves to feel, to be sad, to be sorrowful, to lament, then our humanity and our spirituality is deeply compromised. And I think some of us actually end up believing that, 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 that being sorrowful or being sad is a sin. Like we end up getting to that point where I can't be because I'm, I'm a Christian, so I'm meant to be happy. And, and that's not true. See, what happens with Job here is he actually gives himself that permission. And I think sometimes for us, instead of tearing our robes, we buy a new outfit. Instead of shaving our head, we style our hair. 
And see, what Job is doing here is he's showing in that culture the, 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 the act of, of, of lamenting and telling people that I'm in pain. And you can visibly see that I'm in pain. It's kind of like when we go to a funeral and we wear black. We, we, we show outwardly kind of what's happening on the inside. And Job says, this is how I will initially respond. I will begin by responding by lamenting. I am in deep pain, therefore I will lament. Uh, this reminds me of uh, a story of the last few months that has been one of the biggest stories in the world, aside from the pandemic. And it's a story of WandaVision. I don't know if you've ever watched WandaVision, but um, it's probably one of my favorite shows over the last year. Um, there will be no spoilers is what I'm about to say, but really, you should have watched it by now. Um, and so Forbes magazine, the most viewed television show in the world. And the central theme to WandaVision is trauma and loss. See, Wanda has this power to create her own realities, to, to distance herself from her feelings of pain by recreating something new and engulfing herself in that. And as she does that, she ends up engulfing hundreds more people in that. And if you know, if you've watched WandaVision, you know what I talk about when I say engulfing. Um, and so, um, no spoilers. Um, but this is what happens when we learn to carry our lament in ourselves. And we, and we don't deal with it. We end up with the inability to grieve, the inability to, 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 to feel. And we, and we start to pull other people into that too. And just like Wanda, we start to create alternate realities in our minds of how we're feeling. And we dress it up to look pretty and to look neat. That, that thing of, oh, oh, I'm a Christian, so I, I got to look good. I remember my family, like, when we were growing up, and we'd, we'd go to church on a Sunday morning, and we could be on the drive on the way to church, and we're fighting. Like, I have two other brothers, and so, like, three guys, like, we went at each other. And we'd be in the car fighting, and mom would be like, shut up, and dad would be like, stop it. And then the door would open to church, and we'd be like, the white laws. <laughs> right? And we're like, oh, we're so happy. And everyone's like, oh, you have such a lovely family. And then we get back in the car and we're punching each other again. And it'd be like totally faking it, faking it to make it. And this is the thing here is this is not what we're meant to do. Actually, when we experience pain or trouble or moments of grief, we start with lament. Uh, Pastor Rich Velotis says this, the difference between a spiritually healthy person and someone who is not healthy is the ability to recognize grief, sorrow, and sadness and lift it up to God rather than suppressing it. I love that. And what I love about the book of Job is that we have the example of what happens when someone going through severe sorrow and pain lifts up their grief to God rather than suppressing it. So the second part of verse 20, so he's torn his robes, he shaved his head. What does he do next? Then he fell to the ground and he worshipped. Job holds grief and God together. And this is critically important for us to know. We inevitably will reach out for something when we hurt, when we pain, when we have pain, when we, when we suffer. And the invitation to you and I is to reach out for the living God, to reach out for him in our suffering. Um, Aaron Stern says this, watch, watch what you reach for when you're in pain. And sometimes we can reach for things that actually do not help. We're to reach out for the living God. And so this, this is the start, this is the first response. And what ends up, as you'll see as we go through the next 20 minutes, is, is Job actually responds in different ways. Like this is the start of his response. And I think sometimes we can read the story of Job and go, okay, well, I don't know. Maybe Job was just like a perfect follower of God. Like, 
He had it all together. I know he experienced some bad things, but he was still able to worship God, and I just can't live up to that. And we kind of stop there with Job, and then we go to the end of the story, and we're like, oh my goodness, this looks really great for Job now. That's not the story, the whole story of his response. His response actually changes as we go through the chapters. He actually goes through a grieving process. But the second response I want to quickly talk about here is Job's wife. Job's wife's response. Chapter 2, verse 9, it says this. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Okay. Job responded, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Um, I'm going to be honest. I think Job's wife gets a bad rap. Like, I think she gets a bad reputation in this book and has really received a bad reputation for centuries um, because Job's wife is in the same position as Job. She's just lost her 10 kids. She's just lost her, 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 her source of income, her abilities, like everything for her has crumbled too. And the story focuses on Job's response, but his wife processes through this journey with him too. And she's going through deep grief, deep sadness, deep deep turmoil, and maybe even what we can describe as PTSD towards the end of this. She's going through absolute hurt. And Job's response is really interesting. And sometimes we read it harshly, but I don't think it is. Let's just quickly analyze this. Job's response is fascinating. He says this, and it sounds like a harsh rebuke, but it's not. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not receive evil? And if you listen to what Job says here, it's, it's, it's almost admiration. You speak as one of the foolish women. He didn't say to his wife, you are foolish. He said, you speak as one of the foolish women. You sound like one of the foolish women. He's almost saying, honey, you do not sound like yourself. You, you, babe, you don't sound like yourself. You're, you're talking like somebody who is foolish. This is not you. This is not the godly woman I married and know and love. You're speaking out of your pain, out of your hurt. But this is not the truth. You're not sounding like yourself. And he goes on to be like, but shall we not accept good and evil? Hey, hey God, my wife, remember God's promises. Remember his faithfulness. Remember his goodness. Such a far cry from the ringing condemnation that often she's received, right? She was experiencing the same acute pain as Job. And I wonder even to the pain in her eyes, how that would have elevated Job's suffering and pain too. I don't know if you're married, but if your spouse is going through deep pain, you feel that too, even more. Job's words as he speaks to her is really interesting because we actually don't hear any words from his wife in the rest of the book. We hear about her later on, but we don't hear any words. And it's interesting. I think his words were the balm that his wife needed to soothe her soul. His words did something to comfort her and to help her. To remind her again to trust in God's faithfulness. And this is the second thing we see of Job. How his response of grief starts to change. He is, he is he's in pain, he laments, he, he then worships, but then in his pain, he's also able to soothe another's. And you have to realize this, that sometimes in your pain, you're still able to help someone else. And Job does this here. With deep faith, he spoke truth and comfort in the middle of pain. 
And then we get to a section of the book, which is about 30 chapters. And so this is the next three hours of the message. Um, joking. Um, is Job's friend's response. And so Job's friends hear of what has happened to him, and they show up onto the scene. Um, and we're going to unpack quickly just how they respond to Job. In, in chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. They, they come onto the scene, and the first thing they do is they sit in quiet with Job, and they allow him just to grieve. In, in quiet for seven days and seven nights. Now, I don't know if you've ever uh, walked through suffering and grief with somebody, but I've never done it for seven days and seven nights in quiet. Usually I want to say something. Usually I want to, 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 to speak words and just be like, hey, it'll be okay, and here's all the words to say. Uh, interestingly, recently I heard Rick Warren talk about this, and he said basically um, that the, the, the bigger the pain, the bigger the suffering, the least amount of words you need. You just need to be present. You just need to be there. And then after seven days of silence, Job begins to speak. Now, can you imagine what Job would say? Right. So we've, we've seen him lament. We've seen him worship. We've seen him speak truth to his wife and her pain, and now he has had seven days to process, right? So my imagination is he would be like, come out with some really profound, deep words of worship, right? He would be like, wow, the Lord is good. But that's not what happens. Actually, Job offers words that you probably wouldn't hear in church service. He offers words that you probably wouldn't hear in someone's like baptismal, tes baptism testimony, he offers words that, that probably, as a Christian, you may cringe, but words that are honest, that are true, that are authentic. He says this in Job chapter 3, and we're going to read this part together here. Job 3, I'm going to read 1 to 5, 11 to 13, 24 to 26, as we, as we skim read through this section. This is what Job says. Out of seven days of silence, seven days of processing, seven days of mourning, this is the words that come out of his mouth. At last Job spoke, and he cursed the day of his birth. He said, let the day of my birth be erased, and that night I was conceived. Let that day be turned to darkness. Let it be lost even to God on high, and let no light shine on it. Let the darkness and utter gloom claim that day for its own. Let a black cloud overshadow it, and let the darkness terrify it. Down to verse 11. Why wasn't I born dead? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why was I laid on my mother's lap? Why did she nurse me at her breasts? Had I died at birth, I would now be at peace. I would be asleep and at rest. And then verse 24. I cannot eat for sighing. My groans pour out like water. What I always feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come true. I have no peace no quietness. I have no rest. Only trouble comes. Whew. Wow. Why have I not just died already? God, what the heck are you doing? Why is my life like this? Why didn't I just die before? Why did I experience this pain? Job actually has words of frustration, almost anger towards God, saying, God, what is going on? Seven days. He, he's lamented. He's even worshipped. He's even spoke truth. But now he's speaking frustration. He's speaking out his honest feelings and his truths to God as his friends sit by and as they listen. And interestingly, scholars look at chapter 1 and 2 and they look at chapter 3 and they're like, is this the same guy? 
<laughs> like, is this, the, is this the same guy? But it is. And this is what happens as you go through the process of grief. Your grief, your grief actually changes and manifests itself in new ways. And Job is processing through this. And then his friends start to speak. Job's friends. Don't we all have friends like Job's friends? Job's friends start to speak. And uh, from chapter 4 to chapter 37, there's a lot of conversation. It goes a little bit like this. Friend 1 says something and Job responds. Friend 2 says something and Job responds. Friend 3 says something. Job responds, defending himself. And they go round 1. They go round 2. They keep going for 30 chapters. Just this backwards and forth conversation, arguing, and it's all based around the retribution principle, right? The idea that the good people should have good things happen to them, and people that are bad will suffer. Therefore, that principle defines in Job's friends what is going on in this situation. It gives them a narrative to speak from. It gives them an understanding to see, this is why God has done this in your life. And we're going to quickly look at this. But before we do, they actually say some good stuff ironically, they say some good things. In chapter 5, verse 2, one of the friends says this, resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. Resentment kills and envy slays. That is, that is good advice. One of the other friends in Job chapter 8, verse 8 to 10, says this, ask the former generation, find out what their ancestors learned. For we were only born yesterday and know nothing. Our days on earth are but a shadow Job's friends are basically saying, look back to your parents, your grandparents. Like, look back to the people that have done life, who've got a bit of wisdom, who've got a bit of life experience behind them. Ask them how they're going to, like, that's good advice. Job chapter 11, another friend says this, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? This is good advice. We will never know all the workings of God. This is good advice. And then it kind of stops there. <laughs> That's like the last of what they say. You're like, okay, that was really good, Job. Now your friends can like stop and then leave. Like that, they would have done well. Seven days of just sitting with you, a little bit of good advice, and then leave. Like, good job. But no, they carry on. And what we learn by Job's friends is that you can have good theology, but bad timing. You can have good theology, but a bad spirit. And you can have good theology, but really bad application of it. Think of it this way. The Bible says to rejoice always. But if you go up to someone who's just lost a loved one and say, but rejoice always, you're going to be looked at as harsh, ill-timed, rude. We can have good theology, but we can take it in lots of different ways. And this is what happens with Job's friends. I'm going to quickly point out four quick things that they do and that they say that is bad. It is somewhat okay theology, but then applied in really bad ways and skewed. And we see this as the chapters 4 all the way through uh, to, to chapter 37. And the first thing is this, that all suffering is the result of someone's sin. Now we know this, we know sin is responsible for suffering. We know that when Adam and Eve were disobedient to God, they sinned and launched suffering into the world. But to believe that every single moment of suffering is a cue to somebody's sin is dangerous. And, and Jesus actually rejects this notion in, in one verse in John chapter 9. He says this, um, as he was going along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man or his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. 
in this simple but profound response by Jesus, we see that he rejects the notion that suffering is always caused by someone's sin. Does it happen sometimes? Of course it does. If, if someone was to have an affair, the consequences of that sin ripples out and they're suffering. Of course it happens sometimes. But to say every single time that somebody does something, it causes all the suffering is dangerous. Like with that blind man. It, was, it must have been his sin or it must have been his parents' sin. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. The reason he's going through trouble right now or he has hardship is so God can be glorified through him. And see, what ends up happening is when we acute suffering to all of the suffering, every single suffering to someone's sin, we actually end up viewing God in a fear-based way and a love-based way. We end up looking at God like Bruce Almighty did, and we're waiting for him to smite us. But actually, God does the opposite. That's the first one. The second one is this. And we find this in chapter 7, verse 5 and 6, and you can read this in your own time. But said, their, their, their second part is this. If you just repent, you won't suffer. Okay, Job, if you just, you must have done something wrong. Obviously, you've done something wrong because look at your life. So just repent and you won't suffer. The idea that repentance will get rid of our pain is a flawed formula. Because nothing can safeguard us from suffering. We live in a broken world full of sin and death, and at some point in our lives, we will experience suffering, and repentance won't keep us protected from it. Christianity does not say, if you repent, you won't experience pain. Again, that's what Jesus said. You will experience trouble. You will experience pain. But we're always looking for formulas to help us, right? We're always looking for formulas to try and fix things. If you just fill in the blank, then you will fill in the blank. If you just repent, you won't suffer. But this is not what happens. Because what happens when you do the thing and then you don't get the response? What happens if you repent and then suffering doesn't cease? You end up getting frustrated with God. Because he hasn't held up his end of the bargain. We end up believing that, that God is this transactional genie that grants our wishes when we do the right things. But that is not who God is. We end up believing he's a transactional God, but he's not. He is a loving God. The third thing is this. You get what you deserve. This is the underlying tone of these whole chapters. Is you get what you deserve. Job, you've done something. You're still not repenting of it. You probably get what you deserve. But what this belief does is it simply strips out the grace of God. What this belief doesn't reckon with is there's larger forces in play at the world. Think of poverty, for example. I've heard people say, but if they just worked harder, then... And what I actually find is those who are in poverty work way harder than those who are not. But they've been dealt a bad hand. They're in a season and a place of injustice. And we end up believing the principle that you get what you deserve. We end up relating to God without his grace, without his love, without his mercy. And we just look at him as judge, jury, and executioner. And this is not what is happening. And the final point is this, the innocent don't suffer, right? It's this retribution principle. If you, were, if you were innocent, Job, you would not suffer. So you've done something wrong because if you were innocent, you'd be fine. And the perfect example is Jesus, right? Our Savior, Jesus was perfectly innocent. He'd done nothing wrong, but he suffered deeply. And the reason a lot of people couldn't really figure out who Jesus was and wouldn't understand that he was the Son of God, wouldn't understand that he was the Messiah, was because he was going through pain and suffering. Therefore, retribution principle, he must have done something wrong to deserve it. 
But we know that Jesus didn't. He was sinless. See, God's grace is conditioned on his grace, not our merit, not what we do, not what we deserve. And then we get to this interesting point after we've seen Job's friends respond to him in such a way that they've taken their theology and applied it so bad. And then we get to God's response. God speaks. It's the kind of moment we've been waiting for, right? (laughs) It's like, ooh, what's God going to say? And God does something peculiar. Something that we do not expect. We've seen Job respond in his grief process. We've seen his wife respond. We've seen his friends respond. And now he's waiting for God to respond. And God responds in chapter 38, verse 1 to 13. I'm not going to read it, but I want to encourage you to go and read it um, in your own time. But what Job is waiting for is answers, right? He's waiting for the answers to his pain and to his suffering. And when he wants answers, God gives him questions. (laughs) When he wants fairness, God gives him omnipotence. When he wants clarity, God gives him a mystery. When he wants reasons, God gives him wisdom. Actually, Job receives 50 questions from God, about 50 questions. And they're all about the creation and the origins of the universe. Simple questions like, where were you when I made this? Where were you when all this came into existence? When did you ever do what I've done? Who is the one who sustains everything? Can you do what I do and make it look easy? God doesn't respond with answers, but with questions. And it sounds kind of depressing, right? It sounds depressing because Job needs peace. He needs help. He needs answers. And God starts asking him questions. Like, God, what are you doing? But I think what God is doing is something incredibly smart. See, God works in ways that we do not often understand. But he starts to change Job's perspective. And he does a couple of things. The first thing he says, and what he does is this. He says, Job, I am wholly other. I am totally different to you. I I do things that you would never understand. I can do things you will just never comprehend. I work in ways that are far higher than your thoughts and greater than your ways, and you have to trust me in this because I'm going to do stuff that you're going to be like, what are you doing? Um, I don't know if you ever used to wear the WWJD bands. Remember them? Classic fad of the 90s and the, the noughties, yeah? WWJD, and what would Jesus do, right? Interesting statement, um, because I find this kind of ironic. Because Jesus went around with his followers for three years, his closest friends, the closest people to him, the 12, and, and, they, and they walked with him. They, you know, they, they would sleep next to each other. They would, they would eat food together. They would drink food together. They would climb mountains together, go on lakes together. And most of the time, his friends had no idea what he was doing, right? They had no idea what he was doing. Jesus, it's a storm. Why are you sleeping? Jesus, you won't die. No, that's not going to happen. What, Jesus? Why would you do that? Where are you going, Jesus? We have no idea. It's so interesting that we think that in our brains that we know 100% of the time what Jesus would do. Therefore, we act that way. And the irony is that we probably don't. Jesus operates in ways that are different to us. We have to trust that God is wholly other. And when we read Job chapter 38, we realize God's ways are so different to our ways. Jesus went against the grain, against the way of thinking. Jesus hung out with the people that he wasn't supposed to hang out with. Jesus did the things he was not supposed to do. He said the things he was not supposed to say. And sometimes we're like, yeah, I know exactly what Jesus would do in every single situation. And we have to have humility and go, maybe I don't. Maybe I don't know how God will respond. Because he is wholly other. The second thing that, that, that God does 
And this is how he really shifts Job's perspective from his suffering. Is he reminds them that he is the sustainer of the world. He starts asking them all these questions about creation and, and stuff. And Job's asking the question of, why am I suffering? And, Job, and God responds by going, have you ever made a horse? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, really? Like, I'm experiencing such pain. And he's like, black beauty. Like, what is going on there? It's like, are you serious? But what God is doing in these questions, these moments, he's saying, Job, I made everything. I sustain everything. I hold the universe together. Do you not think I can hold you together? Do you not think your pain and suffering can be held by me and I can comfort you and hold you through that? See, in our suffering, our trials, our grief and pain, God is our sustainer. God is near. He's the one who can hold us together. And if he can do it for the universe, then he can do it for you. And the third thing is this, since we're going we're gonna to bring the plane to land here, is we're to trust God, his wisdom, and his creative ways, even when we can't figure it out. See, in faith, what God is inviting us to is trust, not total understanding. Our faith isn't blind, but we don't know everything. This is not easy, but this is the invitation. We will never know all the workings of the universe, why everything happens, the reasons for every moment, why there's world pandemics. But we can know that the reason we don't know all these things is because the world is not centered around me and you. The world is not centered around us. The world is centered around God. The God who created, the God who sustains, the God through Jesus who makes us right with him again. Everything is centered around God. So through suffering, either in the moment or even in hindsight, it can be often difficult to understand what God is doing and where he is. But what I love, and we see it in scripture, and especially in Romans, in Romans 8, 28, it says this, God works all things for good. And the interesting thing about that verse is we often take the God works out of that. We're just like, all things will work for good if you love God. Woohoo! Don't worry about it, all things. But that's not the subject of this verse is God. God works all things for good for those who love him according to his purposes. Which means that regardless of your situation, if you're in deep suffering or you're not, God is working for you. God is actively working for you in your suffering and in your pain. And what God is giving Job in these chapters, in chapter 38 to 40, is not to crush him or to belittle him, but to say, I am working for you, Job. I am working for you as God says to you and to I that I am working for you. I have not abandoned you. I can sustain you. I am wholly other. I work in ways you will not understand. But know that I am working for you. The God of the universe, the God of the, the creator of everything is working for you and I. So how does Job respond to this? How does Job respond to God after this? What happens when Job... Here's these words. You would imagine, maybe, maybe he feels like, oh, that's not my answers. That's not what I wanted. <laughs> like, what is, what's going on? Like, I, I asked why I've lost my kids, why I've lost my income, why I've lost everything, and, and why, I'm, why I'm sick. Like, and you're telling me that you can make horses and rhinos and like, but this is Job's response in chapter 42. And these two lines are so powerful. He says this, my ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I relent, and I find comfort on dust and ashes. Job's response to God is to listen to him. And by acknowledging that he doesn't know everything, he finds his comfort in God and puts his trust in him. He takes humility and says, I don't know all things, God, but I trust you. We know that God works all things for good. And for Job, some of those good came on this side of heaven, 
and some came and will come on the other side. Um, and I'm not going to tell you how the story ends. You have to read Job chapter 42 to find that out. But as we bring this to land, I hope you understand from the book of Job, the wisdom of Job, that when suffering comes, when pain comes, don't blame yourself. Don't blame others. Don't fall into the retribution principle where you go, well, I've done all the good things, so therefore I shouldn't experience pain. No, actually, Jesus says, we will have trouble, we will have pain. But how we respond to that pain, how we respond to that suffering is crucial. Like Job, we're actually called to lament. Then we're called to worship. Then we're called to speak truth and to then sit in silence and to wait on the living God who is our comfort and our hope and allow him to speak truth to us, to soothe our soul, to raise our perspective from here to here. And we may never have all the answers. We may never know all the workings, but we do know that we have a God who works for us, who works on behalf of us, who is constantly reaching out and working when we don't even see it. And this is the tension of faith. It's holding grief and suffering and God together. And this is the invitation that you and I have been called into. Choose God today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word speaks life and speaks truth. We thank you for the story of Job. And how even more relevant it is today. God, often we can maybe have good theology, but we apply it wrong. Or good theology and we have bad timing of it. Good theology and we maybe say it in an ill-timed way. But God, we know here that we have a God who we can trust. That even in our suffering, even in our pain, even if we never know all the answers, you're the God who sustains all things, who holds all things, and is working for us. That your comfort and your hope and your presence is available to us. May today, no matter what we're feeling, no matter the suffering, the pain, the tiredness, the frustration, the anger that we have, God, would we know that you are enough? Would you be our comfort and our strength? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.